This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Missing is produced by What's the Story Sounds. They also make lots of other great content, which I think you might like. Why not sign up for What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll find series including The Missing completely ad-free, as well as bonus content and even entire series you can't hear elsewhere. Signing up is super easy. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. When you hear that someone is missing, it flashes up on the news, you overhear a conversation in the pub. What is the image your mind conjures up? Melancholy. Young. Alone. It might surprise you that many missing people have, or had, loving families and friends. This episode tells the story of Anne Simpson, a 60-year-old mother and grandmother who went missing in 2004. A disappearance which has devastated a family and left them full of questions. Until some evidence or some person comes forward or somebody says something or knows something, we'll never know. I'm Pandora Sykes and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series brought to you with support from the charity Missing People and investigation specialists Locate International. They believe every one of these cases could still be solved. This is The Missing, Anne Simpson. Across this series, we've told many stories of unsolved disappearances, each one unique in its detail, but sharing the same feelings of confusion, sadness and loss. But while many episodes have examined disappearances in young people, older generations are affected too. The percentages are smaller. In fact, just under 5% of missing people reported each year are over the age of 60. But that makes those cases no less significant or worthy of investigating. 
Irish-born Anne Simpson is a case in point. 60 years old, standing at just 5 foot 1 in height, with a bouffant of white hair, she was an older lady who wasn't going to let her increasing years hold her back. She was just like a little firecracker. I mean, she was small and petite and literally had the biggest aura about her. She could walk into a room and you knew she walked into that room. She always loved a good party and a, a drink and a good a good dance-off. She loved a dance-off. She would be the first one on the dance floor and the last one, and you just couldn't get her off it. That's Anne's granddaughter, Stephanie. Stephanie was 17 when her nan disappeared, and she is our window into this story. But if you're thinking that Nan was a frail, bingo-loving, stereotypical older lady, you'd be wrong. If somebody was down and on, down on the look, she would help them. She was the kind of person that would give her last penny to somebody who was on the streets. But at the same time, she would be the first person to stop the biggest man in the area that was picking on somebody. She would be the one to stand up and fight her ground for him. But yeah, she... You, if <laughs> she would know to it. I mean, like I said, if she was in a bar or somewhere, she would be the one you would watch out for. So she was. She could hold her own for someone so small. Anne had lived the majority of her life in Leicester, having moved there from Ireland when she was young. She'd lived on Saffron Lane, an estate in the south of the city, for years alongside her long-term companion, Tom. But Anne's love for Leicester had recently soured. She had a bit of a hard time. Her, her daughter died of, of cancer and she just just couldn't really get out of a little a rut she was in because she was missing her daughter and it just wasn't a good place for her. One day, while Anne and Tom were walking along the pier in Skegness, a seaside town in Lincolnshire, Anne made a radical decision. They'd only gone to the beach for a day trip to blow away the cobwebs but as they walked along, Anne decided she needed a permanent change of scene. They just decided one day, do you know what, if we're happy there, why not? So they sold up their house and they off they went to Skegness. Whether it was a change in location, being beside the beach or the sea air, Stephanie remembers that the move transformed her nan. She literally... Blossomed. She was there for six weeks after moving in. They'd got a static caravan and lived in the caravan, and she just blossomed. She became outgoing. She was, she looked well. Her skin was good. Her hair was healthy. She, she just completely did a 360. Nothing could bother her anymore. Anne and Tom moved to the Coastfields Caravan Park in Ingermells, a coastal village in the East Lindsay district of Lincolnshire. The caravan was small but perfectly formed, with a tiny kitchen and two bedrooms. It was a far cry from her home back in Leicester, but it suited them both. I should probably introduce Anne's companion, Tom. Once again, you might be imagining the pair as a sweet, long-term pair of lovebirds growing old together. In fact, Anne and Tom weren't actually a couple. They were companions who leaned on each other for mutual support. Do you know what? They needed each other. They they both fell on hard times. He needed a friend. She needed somewhere to stay. And they, they moved in and they lived like that for, well, as as long as I can remember. I mean, I was... That's that that's all I ever knew. Tom was like my granddad. Um, and they lived together. They had separate bedrooms and he did his thing and she did hers, but they did everything together. So 
if, if holidays and, and breaks away, it, it was like they couldn't be without each other. But as well as their love of games of darts at the pub and afternoons walking, the pair were also known for their blazing rows, which would often result in them not speaking for weeks at a time. They would shuffle around the house, and later the caravan, giving each other the silent treatment. There would be times where they just wouldn't talk to each other for days, um, just not, just like not pass each other, not have to talk to each other, not deal with each other. Um, and then the next day they'd be back downstairs having a little shop on QVC and everything was all right again. That was them and they were happy with that because they were best friends and they did everything together and it didn't matter if they fell out, they'd, they'd always, always be friends again. So, yeah, it was a strange little, a strange little um, relationship, but that's just how they lived and they were happy with that. One Saturday night in September, a couple of months after Anne and Tom had relocated to Skegness, they invited Anne's family to visit their new home. The whole clan made the trip. Stephanie, her mum, her sister and her sister's new baby. And it would turn out to be the perfect family weekend. We went round to the market and had a little wander round. She took the younger children, so my little niece, she took her into the arcades and just usual stuff we would do with Nan as a family kind of thing. We went into the clubhouse um, and kind of sat and had some lunch and stuff in the clubhouse. Um, we went out and watched the entertainment at night um, and then we all kind of packed up and got ready to leave on the Sunday and it was just such a lovely weekend. It was nothing out of the ordinary really that kind of stuck out. Nothing at the time that was really stuck out at the time, but she she just couldn't be more excited that we were there and seeing her life. And she kept introducing us to everybody. And this is my family, and here's my grandchildren, and here's my great grandchildren. And she was just so proud of her family. And she would she just wanted to tell everybody, and she just wanted to show how good her life was now, and how we were all there to share it with her. And she just loved it. It was just a great weekend family said their goodbyes in the late afternoon of Sunday the 26th of September. It was a sad moment, but it wouldn't be long until they were reunited. In fact, they'd already arranged to visit Nan again over Halloween, which was only six weeks later. By that time, Stephanie's baby would have been born, and there'd be another member of the family to celebrate. As the sun set on the weekend, the family began their two-hour drive back to Leicester, and Anne headed to the Bell, the pub on the caravan site, for a glass of something. It was still dark outside the next morning when Anne's daughter's phone rang. Your mum's gone missing. I think she's gone. I think she's walked in the sea. Tom was on the other end of the line. He couldn't find Anne. He was rushing his words and he wasn't making much sense. There was just kind of no real explanation. He just kind of kept saying, he's got up this morning and she's gone. She's not coming back. Word quickly got round to the rest of the family. No one had heard from Anne since they'd left the night before. Where on earth could she have gone? That was literally the start of it. And Mum and my auntie Julia, my auntie Jackie, they all kind of jumped in their cars and they went down to Skegness that day um, to start kind of putting the pieces together and find out why what's happened. Has she really gone missing? And why would she go missing? Somebody just doesn't disappear into thin air, so where could she be? They, they just thought, right, we'll jump in the car and we'll go find her.
The most logical starting point was Tom. By the time the family had arrived, Tom had already spoken to the police, who'd begun to search the caravan site. Tom told the police what he then told Anne's daughters, a story of a fairly ordinary night at his and Anne's local pub. They went in the pub and they finished their drinks. Um, they got into a bit of a, a, a disagreement, as they would, nothing major. Um, and he said, oh, I'm not, I'm not listening to this, I'm going home. Um, and he went back to his caravan. He's told us that he went back to his caravan and he stayed in his room because, obviously, he wasn't talking to us, so he wasn't going to sit in the living room and wait for it to come back. This sounded entirely normal to the family, who were used to Tom and Anne's spats. But that night, something unusual did happen. He said that he heard... He heard her come back around 10.30. Um, between 10 and 10.30, he heard her come back. Um, he says he heard her fumbling around and kind of banging around and whatnot, opening cupboards and so on. Um, and then he heard around 11 o'clock, I'm going out. And apparently she shouted, I'm going out, and slammed the door. Tom had stayed in his own room, not wanting to engage in a further fight, and had fallen asleep soon after Anne had left. It was only in the morning when he woke up that he realised Anne hadn't returned. And alarmingly, she had left her handbag and her purse in the caravan, suggesting that wherever she was going, she didn't think she'd be needing them. With so many missing persons cases tragically ending in suicide, it's not a stretch to imagine that Anne left the caravan that night with the intention of taking her own life. But this version of events just didn't ring true to the Simpson family. No way. If you'd have asked us a year before or two years before, there would have, would have been a good chance, yeah. I mean, she, she did suffer with depression and she was severely depressed once her daughter had died and she she couldn't get out of that thing. And she would always say things like, I want to go be with my daughter. Like, I don't need to be here kind of thing. And she, she did say those things. Um, but once she did move to Skegness, like I said, she completely changed and she she kind of just woke up from it and she was she was happy and she was looking forward to things. So at that time and place, no, there was no way she would have done that. Not to mention that Anne hated the sea and the cold. The family felt strongly that if Anne was contemplating suicide, walking into the freezing depths of the North Sea was just not the way she would have chosen. The family tried to think of more plausible scenarios. Maybe she got drunk, she went to the pub and got drunk, and maybe she's collapsed somewhere or banged her head and she's in a ditch somewhere. Has she fell asleep in somebody else's house and doesn't know where she is? Has she woken up in a hospital and she doesn't know her name? And they pieced together how their nan's evening could have played out. She's gone out, she's gone to find another drink, she's gone to find another pub. She would talk to anyone, so if she was walking down the street and met someone in the pub, she might have gone back to their house. And that was that was the number one thought that was going through our heads of, yeah, she might have met someone, she might have been sat in their house now having a cup of tea, do you know, like, and it would just been a big misunderstanding, and that was the kind of route we were all thinking. But then why wouldn't Anne have phoned? In fact, it later transpired that Anne did try to phone. Before she'd gone back to the caravan that night, she called in at the local shop. The shopkeeper recalled that Anne... Went into the shop that night and was very upset and very 
anxious to call her daughters and it, she was frantic about topping up her phone and between the two of them they struggled um, and he tried to top up her phone and she hadn't got her a handbag with the numbers in so she couldn't kind of work it out um, so he topped up her phone for her and she said I need to call my daughter I need to get away I need to get back to my daughters but she hadn't called perhaps she'd gone to find a phone elsewhere or she'd gone back to the bell to use the phone there but then the family realised the flaw in that story. At that time, it was a Sunday. It was coming to the end of season. There wasn't another pub anywhere around that area that she could have gone to for a drink. And of course, Anne didn't have any money with her. She didn't take a purse. So her leaving, she had no intention to go and buy a drink because she hadn't taken a handbag. There was also the fact that Anne had had an accident a few years prior. It had badly damaged her ankles, and she wasn't able to walk more than a few steps unaided. She wouldn't have been able to walk any further than outside the caravan, so she would have had to have got a taxi or a bus, and again, at that time of night, there's nothing. Every possibility that the family thought of, they just as quickly discounted. None of it added up. The family would knew something just wasn't right, that just left Tom, Anne's long-term companion. He'd been the last person to see her and the last person to hear her. As he said, he'd heard her clattering around the caravan at approximately 10.30pm the previous night. Tom hadn't made much sense during that first frantic phone call and nothing he'd said since had been helpful either. Within the very first day, he started saying strange things like, I think she's gone in the sea. I think she's not coming back. She's not coming back. She's walked in the sea. And it wasn't just what Tom said, but how Tom acted, which started to raise red flags. He just... He kind of followed my mum and auntie around constantly, kind of preparing to find the worst kind of thing. Like, he, he kept trying to keep them away from the caravan and kept trying to keep them out and stuff. Um, and mum's like, well, I want to go back and see her stuff. Like, I want to... I want to make sure she what she's taken. Tom was insistent that Anne had come back to the caravan and changed her clothes. He said that Anne had changed into a particular black cardigan, one of her favourites. But yet he didn't come out of that room, so how did he know what she was wearing when she left? The family had known Tom for years. They didn't suspect foul play. Tom was worried and panicked. Perhaps he'd mixed up his memories. They suspected there was more to it, but were certain the police would get to the bottom of it and that everything would then become clear. In most investigations, the relationship between the missing person's family and the police is crucial, as details are passed back and forth in the hope that that person will be found quickly and that no important information is missed. But in the wake of Anne's disappearance, the police dealt directly and almost exclusively with Tom, who then relayed those developments onto Anne's daughters. As Tom was their main point of contact, they immediately followed up his suspicions that Anne had walked into the sea. Hats off to them. I mean, they, they literally did the biggest sea search rescue the Lincolnshire police have ever done. And they searched, they'd had the helicopters out, they had everything out, you can imagine, for the sea. Um, because in their head, they were looking for a, a suicidal sea jumper. 
But the search didn't find anything, nor did the wider search of the caravan park or the caravan. They didn't do a big search on the caravan because their excuse was, well, she lived there, her DNA and stuff would all be there. Days passed, then weeks. The family were desperate for answers, but their main line of communication to the police and the investigation was through Tom. But Tom seemed to be more and more reluctant to share information with them. It took a lot of persisting from my mum and my aunties to kind of keep going in and saying, why are you not keeping the family informed? Um, and it took quite, it was about a year into it that they actually realised that my mum was actually next of kin and they shouldn't have been really telling Tom anything because, OK, he was her partner, but my mum was legally her next of kin. By this point, it made no difference. Any possible clue or lead had evaporated. There was never a sighting or there was there was never any CCTV. They did the usual things of checking her bank cards and checking her passport and a bank activity and all those kind of things. And obviously nothing was ever touched. Nothing, nobody ever came back for anything. There was never any posts for anywhere. There was no footage of anything anywhere. Um, there was very little that was happening because they, they didn't know where to go next. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In many missing persons cases, it's not just the absence of the person they love that takes its toll on the family, but the sense of helplessness. At first, it's the big milestones. Jenny's daughter's birthday was coming up and they knew if she didn't get in contact for that birthday, there was something wrong. If she never got in contact, she wouldn't have missed Alicia's birthday. And then it's just the passing of time as every day goes by with no news. 
it's just haunting it just mentally like you just the not knowing of what happened or what could have happened just grinds you down and then in the vast expanse of empty time comes the bombshell of new developments after the police investigation dwindled the family refused to give up almost a decade later they went back to the pub the Bell Inn, and spoke to the landlord who'd been there that fateful night. He was still in charge, still pulling pints, and he remembered the night in question. But his memories were very different to what the family had been led to believe. Straight away, he kind of comes out with, OK, I'll tell you, she was here with um, two bikers, Tom, and two men. Um, I don't know who they were or who who Tom was in relation to Nan. I just know they were all here um, and they got into a bit of a disagreement and Tom and the two men left. It's a completely different story. To say that Anne's family was shocked at this development was an understatement. That completely blew our minds of the fact all these years later, 10 years, 11 years later... His, his story was clear as anything, and yet he decided to not tell the police that kind of version of events. And that, that was kind of a big game-changer for us. They went straight to the police. Here were some new leads. Other people who were with Nan that night, they said, and might be able to shed some light on what happened. But the police basically kind of said, well, it's we've got no evidence. There's no CCTV, there's no evidence, we don't know these men... And it just never went any further because there was no evidence. In most cases, knowledge is power. But what happens when you have some knowledge but are powerless to act on it? Especially if that knowledge seems to be becoming increasingly significant. Later on, one of Tom's brothers got in contact with one of my mum's sisters and basically said, you know what, I'm, I'm really worried about Tom. He has these two strange men with him all the time. Tom had been awarded some compensation for an accident at work and his brother thought that these two men were exploiting the fact that Tom now had a considerable sum of money. His brother was really concerned of the fact he was giving them gifts and giving them very expensive gifts, giving them a car, giving them money whenever they needed it. Alarm bells started to ring. Now all of a sudden there's two very big strong men that are involved that might have helped in some way and in our minds they're being paid off. The family confronted Tom, but they were met with complete dismissal. I don't know what you mean. There's no two men. There's nothing. I've sold the caravan. I've sold the car. But Tom's brother was adamant. He kind of felt like his brother was being blackmailed in some sort of way. Um, he couldn't justify it, and he was, he was really worried about Tom. Again, the family went to the police. Again, the police put it down to, do you know what? It was, it was ten years ago. So this is where we need your help. You, the listeners. In all of our cases, there are opportunities to help. Opportunities to come forward if you know something or know someone who knows something. And we urge you to do so. But there are other ways that you can maybe help, like helping us solve a big piece of the puzzle. We've never got to the bottom of these two men. The the guy in the landlord of the pub has never really given a description of these two men. Um, Nobody's ever had a sighting of these two men. So we, we, know, we know they exist, but we don't know who they are or what they are or what they even look like. Perhaps you were in the Bell Inn 
on the night of the 26th of September, 2004. Perhaps you remember seeing the vivacious and charismatic Anne Simpson, or the tattooed biker she was sitting with. If you do, please get in touch. All the details are on our website, themissingpodcast.org. If nothing else, if these two guys would come forward and just say, do you know what, we were there, and this kind of ticked off that timeline, that, that would be a massive achievement. Tip-offs are part of the lifeblood in a missing person's investigation. They act as oxygen, keeping a case alive years after the original event. In some cases, they can also be the key to unlocking what happened and bringing a case to a conclusion. So in 2012, when the police were given a promising tip-off, the family threw their hope behind it. They had a phone call and they were given a tip-off regarding some information about Nan, um, which ended up in the lake of Sutton-on-Sea being being searched. And at the same time, there was a local man from Devon um, that was kind of pulled in for questioning. At that time, this was the only information given to the family. But it was enough. I couldn't even tell you what the tip-off was, but I do know that it resulted in Tom officially being questioned on the disappearance of my nan. And they he pulled he was pulled in for questioning, and that's the same time as when they started searching the lake in Sutton-on-Sea. The search, the arrest, the cogs were finally moving, and Anne's family were convinced they were on the cusp of an answer. It's just the weirdest numb feeling of, oh my God, like they could actually find something. This could all kind of be at an end. You kind of watch them go in the lake and it's just this completely surreal feeling of knowing that she could have been in that lake. You're sitting there thinking, please don't be in there. Anne wasn't in there, or at least she wasn't found and Tom was released without charge. Later, the family would find out what was discussed in that interview room. He was questioned and his response to it was, do you know what, it was was 12 years ago, I can't remember. I'm an old man, I can't remember. It was such a long time ago. It it just seems like it was a complete cop-out. Tom's involvement in Anne's disappearance has swirled around this case from the very first phone call. The contradictory things he said at the beginning. His insistence that Anne had committed suicide. The black cardigan. His involvement with two suspicious men. It's a litany of clues, but nothing concrete or foolproof. The family are reluctant to believe that Tom would have purposefully done something to Anne. Tom was a gigantic man. He was extremely tall, extremely wide. He was a strong man. Um, He also fell down a manhole at work and really damaged his leg. He nearly almost had his leg cut off. Um, So when they moved into the caravan, his leg wasn't 100%. So the size of this man in this little caravan with a very half-working leg, it just didn't seem possible at all. Like, how was he going to do this to Nan and, and move her or get rid of her. Do you know, like, you, you kind of go through those situations and you're sitting there thinking, this, he couldn't have done it. 
But over the years, there have been so many rumours, so much which just didn't feel right, that it's a theory the family can no longer talk themselves out of. There was a weird situation with a duvet cover that he threw away into a giant dustbin, wrapped up, and you're kind of like, hold on, these things don't... There was just lots of weird things he kept saying. Then there was the immediate aftermath after Anne went missing and Tom's apparent coolness with Anne's belongings. You've lived with this woman 20 years and the very next day she's left, you've disposed of all her stuff. Why have you given my mum no sentimental things of her stuff, just some knitting needles or a little pile of bills? There was nothing, there was no emotional attachment whatsoever. But yet his dog goes missing and he puts out a £5,000 reward for a dog. But yet his partner, who he's lived with for 20 years, he's just like, oh, she's gone. It's a process of elimination, removing theories which don't make sense until you're left with one that does. She couldn't have killed herself and hid her own body. She hasn't used her passport. She hasn't used her bank card. She didn't leave with the intention of going to a shop or a pub or a friend's house because she never took her purse or a handbag. That was always with her. We've ticked all these boxes. She's not left the country in any way. So the only possible outcome is that she is dead. And the only possible thing is somebody's covered something up somewhere. Um, And for me, Tom was the last person to see her or hear her or give a story of account of where she could have been. Maybe something did get angry, maybe something did happen, a complete accident, or maybe she was drunk and fell over and he panicked or something, and his his reaction was to cover something up, but until some evidence or some person comes forward or somebody says something or knows something, we'll never know. Stephanie and the rest of Anne's family are desperate to lay their nan to rest. Just to bring her home and give her the respect that she deserves would be great. That would mean everything. She, she would want nothing else than to be, to be laid to rest where people knew where she was and to be laid with her daughters. That Somebody out there knows where Nan is. Somebody out there knows where she is and what happened that night. That is just a case now of just waiting to see if somebody does the right thing and kind of steps forward and and says, you know what, I know where she is or I know who was the last person to see her. Um, And that would be amazing if somebody could actually do that. We've put the details of this case on our website, themissingpodcast.org. On there, you'll find images and details, not just for this case, but for every case we featured on the show. There's also links where you can share vital information on these cases with the experts at Locate International. They've set up a team to investigate these cases and explore any information that comes in. And you'll find more information about the charity Missing People, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. 
The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.